Welcome to the Optimal Performance Guide, where we have conversations with high-level humans to provide clear guidance to the mindset and habits required for optimal performance. I'm your host, Rory Cordial. Okay, guys, on the show today, we sit down with Jack Feldman. Jack is a Brooklyn, New York native with his PhD in physics and is a distinguished professor of neurobiology at UCLA. According to my friend and previous guest, Andrew Huberman, Jack is the world leader in all things breathing. So who better to talk about this amazing gift of breath than Jack? Jack discovered an area in the brainstem that is responsible for the rhythm of breath, which he named the pre-Butzinger complex. He's a world leader into the discovery of the answer to this simple question. How is the very basic rhythm of breathing generated? In this episode, we explore Jack's journey to answer this simple sounding question. And he shares a lot of valuable information and insights into how our respiration impacts our health and optimal performance, including how the breath prepares the body for exercise before it even begins, why high-intensity interval training works, and very interesting findings with episodic hypoxia training. I really enjoyed talking to Jack, and I hope you find value in our conversation. Thanks, as always, for tuning in and supporting the show. Okay, enough talking. Let's get to the show. Well, I would love to start. I also love physics. So I'm curious about your start with physics. Maybe you could talk about, you know, I saw you have a PhD in physics and you have your bachelor's in physics. So maybe when you went to college, how did you decide on physics? So when I, when I was in, I grew up in Brooklyn and um, we hung around a lot in the street corner. And I realized that it wasn't the smartest guys who always won out. It was the guy who was the quickest wit. It was about words. And then when in high school, I read philosophy. And uh, I realized it, it didn't necessarily have to do with what the truth was. It came with how you manipulated words. And I got very interested in space and time and read uh, Kant. And I realized it was just words. And so I got very interested in trying to understand the conception of space and time. I got very interested in physics. And that was what I was going to do. And I went to uh, college. I went to Brooklyn Poly in part because I graduated high school when I was young. And they had an accelerated PhD program. And I was going to wind up with a PhD in physics at the age of 22. And then Whoa. I figured out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but I, I quickly realized that my interest in cosmology and space and time couldn't be met there. And I wound up um, going to the University of Chicago, where they had the, probably the world's leading cosmologist, um, uh, Professor Chandra Sekhar there. And I was, went there to work with him. And um, I mean, it was great. I mean, he was just fantastic. Um, but I was there in the late 60s. And there was a big explosion on campus of an interest in perception. And for reasons I uh, would say for another time, I get very interested in the per perception. 
um, how you you know you think the world is one particular way, but there are things that you could self-administer that distort that. And that really shook me up because I thought space and time was something that was sort of conceptual and not perceptual. So I got very interested in the perception of space and time. And fortunately at the University of Chicago, it's possible to, if you're sort of in an in-between place, to find someone who would be willing to let you do something a little bit offbeat. And so I, my physics department advisor uh, hooked me up with a mathematician who said, okay, uh, we can begin to look at the brain and space and time and let's find the problem. And so, of course, I was interested in this perceptual problem, but my advisor really was against it. He said, the only way I'm going to let you work on the brain is if you find a solvable problem. And he was very adamant about that because he says, the brain is much too complicated and you'll never be able to figure anything out. So I read and I read and I read and I got interested in two problems. One was vision, which turns out Andrew Huberman is one of the world's expert on. And that's a great problem because you can characterize the, the external world uh, objectively, and then you could follow the signals as it enters into your eye and um, try to figure out then how your brain is discerning what's going on outside your body. Um, but there were a lot of people working on that, and I was a theoretician. I wasn't going to get my hands dirty. And so I looked for another problem, and I found something I thought was pretty, if I can use the word, trivial, and that is breathing because I thought breathing would be just how the brain generates a sine wave. And so I, I did a model based on uh, the neural properties that I uh, learned. And uh, I tried to get a postdoc in a lab that would let me work as a theoretician. But at that time, people who did sort of theoretical and mathematical modeling and biology were not particularly welcome. And I was basically told, you're welcome to come here and do experiments, but we didn't have theoreticians. Um, at the same time, um, I was interested in going outside the United States because the late 60s was a tough time in the United States. I mean, we sort of just lived through it and hopefully we'll be get, get past it. But the late 60s was the, Vien the Vietnam War and there's a lot of turmoil and I had... Um, wondered if the values that uh, supported the Vietnam War were the values that I really wanted to continue. So I combined the two and, uh, and also my, my desire to live well and got a postdoc in Paris in a lab that studied breathing. And I went and learned to do experiments. And I thought I would solve the problem. And it turned out it was a lot more complicated than we thought. Breathing sounds so simple. We, we do it automatically. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there are lots of things that seem simple. Um, you know, t take an ordinary mechanical watch. If you just look at the face of that mechanical watch, all you have is, and forget the second hand, you just have two hands going around in a circle. So if you try and imagine the simplest possible way of doing that, you just imagine a single spring inside that watch and the spring unwinds and it's done. And, uh, you know, if, as long as you don't open up the watch, I can explain everything with the properties of the right spring. But as you know, if you ever looked inside a mechanical watch, 
It's extraordinarily complicated. And part of the reason for that is that it's not just moving around in a circle. It's that you want it to be precise. You want it to be able to change the time when you need to be able to change the time. It has to be robust because if you're wearing it on your wrist and you move your hands around. And so by the time you get all of these conditions together, a simple spring would never work. And so the solution as a couple of years ago, these brilliant engineers figured out, is having a spring and a pendulum-like mechanism. But when you look inside a watch, it doesn't seem at all like it's so simple. And I think that's, with breathing, we think it's just sort of air in, air out, and that's it. But you got to do it the moment you're born. So this means it has to be working. There are lots of things that in the human body doesn't have to do when you're born, but you have to be able to breathe. So you have to be able to figure it out without actually moving air, because when you're in the uh, when you're in the uterus, there's no air movement. So you got to figure it out. Then you got to start breathing at birth. You got to breathe maybe 600 million times without failing. We don't stop. Uh, we don't stop breathing. We have to um, sleep and breathe. We have to change our breathing patterns. Um, you know, right now. Um, you're probably using about 250 milliliters of oxygen every minute just sitting there. But if you were to get up and walk across the room or, you know, just walk to the store, the amount of oxygen your body would need would probably triple. It would probably be 800 milliliters of oxygen per minute. Now, the problem for the body is... This is 375. Oh, this is... Okay. I don't know if we'll use the video, but just like a water bottle. Just trying to yeah, get so context it's, for the... It's, um, so it's about the size of your fist or an arm. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so, okay. so but your body is using that, uh, using that all the time. But the, the challenge is you don't have a big reservoir in your body. You only basically have 1,000 milliliters available in your body for use for gas exchange. So that means you basically only have a four-minute supply. So that is why when someone has a heart attack and is not able to move blood or is underwater and can't breathe and is drowning, within a few minutes, they could be dead because you've used up that four-minute supply. So you got to do it continuously. And that's, that's not easy to do. Moreover, when you get up and walk and you have to triple your metabolism, you use 750 mLs. Can you imagine now you're using 750 mLs, you have a thousand milliliter supply. If you don't increase the amount that you're breathing, you're going to run out of that and you're going to pass out before you go 100 yards. So what do you have to do? Basically, you have to increase your breathing. And the amazing fact is you increase your breathing before your metabolism requires you to do so. So the, the instant you stand up, you're breathing now goes almost up to what you'll need when you're walking. And uh, there's a technical term for this. It's called the hyperpnea of exercise. That is the increased breathing before exercising. So you're sort of prepared for that level of exercise. Then if you go and exercise and if you need more, you're not ventilating enough for enough oxygen, your ventilation will increase, but you sort of bootstrap yourself with that. So all this has to be part of this system And then breathing has to be coordinated with everything else. 
Uh, the fact that we're able to talk means I have to control the expiratory airflow over my vocal cords. But you probably don't notice, but I'm constantly stopping to take in breaths. And I take in the breaths enough so I'm able to maintain this level of oxygen. I don't go, it may sound like I'm talking for minutes uninterrupted, but in fact, I'm taking breaths all the time. So um, I also have to coordinate it with uh, chewing and swallowing because you have two pipes. You have one going to your stomach and one going to your lungs. And when you swallow, uh, when you swallow water or you chew food and you swallow it, you want to make sure it goes down your esophagus and not into your lungs. So you have to coordinate that. So that's another action has to be coordinated. Um, if you're a mouse and you have whiskers, uh, mice uh, coordinate their local world quite a bit by using their whiskers to figure their way around their environment. That's also coordinated with breathing. And then you have all these other things that are coordinated with breathing. Did you realize that your pupils oscillate with the respiratory cycle? I did not know so that. They got, yeah, so your pupils oscillate. Now, I can't give you an answer as to why, but that's just a fact. Um, your reaction time, so you're a, a big time athlete, your reaction time varies with the respiratory cycle. So if you're a martial artist, you pay attention to whether your opponent is inhaling or exhaling because their response time varies depending on whether they're inhaling or exhaling. Um, Which is faster, inhale or exhale? <laughs> you know, Roy, I have to be candid, I never remember. <laughs> uh, I'll, I have to look that up. I'm embarrassed to say I, hey, no I, worries. I, keep, I keep getting that, that wrong, but there's, there's, a definite, there's a definite variation. And it goes even deeper than that. They did an experiment a couple of years ago where they showed individuals images of uh, faces, and some of the faces are what most people would describe as fearful. Mm -hmm. And what they asked the individuals to do is to respond as quickly as possible if they thought the face was fearful. Their response time varied between inspiration and expiration, and it wasn't a movement-related thing. In other words, their fear response varied with the respiratory cycle. So there's all these mm -hmm. things going on in your whole body that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the movement of air, but having to do with the fact that the brain is using this respiratory cycle for all sorts of purposes. And maybe we can talk about that later. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. The fit, do we know the fear response? Uh, is that associated with more inhalation or exhalation? Here again, I don't remember the sign. I think you're more fearful during inspiration and expiration. Yeah. I think that's gotta be right. Um, Okay. But it's crazy why it should vary with the breathing cycle. I mean, why? I know. <laughs> That's you know, so, I mean, so when I was researching for this, it's so complex. Because <laughs> with the fear, I made a note with, uh, I obviously want you to talk about some of your discoveries with the breath, but there's this parabrachial nucleus that uh, corresponds with the amygdala and the limbic system so for fear mm. so mm. and that directly talks to your um mm. pre, yeah pre butzender complex um there's just so, so much communication right so to try to maybe you can maybe you can tell us as a scientist how do you gather the information or try to how do you try to figure it out 
Well, that's a, I mean, that's sort of a, a basic problem for scientists is you have to decide what the question is and how you can answer it. And the, the question that I wanted to answer was how is the very basic rhythm of be, uh, breathing generated? So I didn't care about how the diaphragm moved or how the upper airways were regulated. I just wanted to know how this clock worked. And um, initially we started by um, taking anesthetized uh, rodents and we would, um, uh, breathing is a behavior that you can see in anesthetized animals. So it, uh, it can be studied rather straightforwardly and without any uh, uh, pain to the animal. And you can stick electrodes into the brain, which are electrodes are wires or glass filled with special conducting fluid that allow you to record from individual neurons. Now, individual neurons are small. The body of an individual neuron maybe is a hundredth of an inch or less. And uh, these neurons, they have a, a body, but then they can have a wire connect coming out of it called an axon that could be a couple of feet long. So you have neurons in your cortex that connect down to your big toe, uh, excuse me, down to your spinal cord, the lower part of your spinal cord. And then there are neurons in the lower part of your spinal cord that'll connect down to your big toe. So these small cells can have very long projections. And these cells send signals by generating electrical activity, which sort of goes down these axons. And so if you stick an electrode into the brain, you can, and if the electrode is small enough, you can, uh, record from individual neurons and see what's happening. So we did that and we found that there were regions in the, the brain stem. The brain stem is the region uh, basically between the neck and the cerebellum, sort of the middle of the back of the head. And that's where a lot of the vital functions of the body are located. And uh, we had a general idea where it was located. There are other people who preceded us for 50 years who had been recording in these spots. But it was ultimately limiting about what we could find out having to do these experiments in intact rodents. And what we found was, well, I should back up a little bit. There's a region in the brain called the hippocampus. It's a very important in memory, and it's been a place which neuroscientists have been extremely interested in studying because the basic aspects of neuronal plasticity seem to be played out in storing uh, short-term memory uh, via the hippocampus. And what they discovered in the early 70s was that if you take the hippocampus from an, uh, a young rat and you took a thin slice of that hippocampus. So you can imagine like a sausage and you just took a thin slice of that. The circuitry that represented the basic signal processing in the hippocampus was in that slice. And the thing you could then do is then put that slice in a dish that had a fluid that uh, was similar to the fluid in the brain. And you can now record from neurons in those slices. And that made it a lot easier. You didn't have to worry about maintaining the whole animal. And you can look directly at very limited parts of the circuit. 
So we decided we were going to try and see if we could isolate the critical regions involved in breathing by doing something similar. So if we took a rat, a newborn rat, and we euthanized it, we could take out the brainstem, and we found that there was one particular slice that was a few hundred microns thick um, that when we put it in the dish, it continued to generate the rhythm of breathing. So we now had the basic circuitry for generating the rhythm of breathing in a dish. And that allowed us to bring all sorts of tools to study that you couldn't use in a whole animal. And we eventually found that this particular region, which we named, because it didn't have a name in any of the atlases, um, which we called the pre-Butzinger complex, um, was the key place for generating the breathing rhythm. We discovered this in about 1990. And we thought it would be a piece of cake then to figure out how the rhythm is generated. And we're still working on it, but we have recently discovered a new mechanism that we think is critical that no one had looked at before. And we think we may be close to figuring out what the basic mechanisms are. What is it? <laughs> uh, all right, you asked. Yeah. So, so when neurobiologists think about rhythms, um, there's a variety of uh, models that they think about, but there are two classes. One which fall under the terms of pacemaker neurons. These are individual neurons which have special properties that enable them to generate a rhythmic activity of bursting. So in your heart, for example, you have specialized cells called pacemaker cells, which approximately once a second is generating a spike. An elect a spike is electrical activity. And that propagates through other electrically connected cells. And that then causes the muscle of the heart to contract. And so you have the heart contracting once, once a minute. Excuse me, once, about once a second. In the nervous system, this was originally found in uh, uh, invertebrates like lobsters and aplesia. There are specialized cells that have this property, specialized neurons that have these properties. And for a long time, people thought that because breathing was such a simple rhythm, it was driven by pacemaker neurons. And when we developed the slice preparation, we indeed, did indeed found neurons with these properties in the pre-Butzinger complex, and we thought the problem was solved. Um, turns out that was not the case, because when we got rid of all the pacemaker neurons, the rhythm went on as if nothing had happened. So it said that the pacemaker neurons were not required. Now, there's another idea that is sort of at the other extreme. It's not cells, but it's at a, a network. And the idea is that you have two populations of cells and that one population of cells becomes active and it grows and the activity grows and grows and grows. And when it reaches a certain point, it triggers a second population. And this second population is different. Instead of being excitatory, it's inhibitory. So in other words, these excitatory neurons ramp up, they turn on these inhibitory neurons, these inhibitory neurons shut the excitatory neurons off, 
the circuit stays off for a little bit and the whole process starts over and over again. And so this is a very simple type of what's called a network oscillator. That also turned out not to be the case because those oscillators required that you have these inhibitory circuits and inhibitory circuits are very well characterized. And so you can eliminate the inhibitory circuits and when you eliminated them, the rhythm still went on. So it wasn't pacemakers and it wasn't, um, right too. <laughs> it wasn't inhibition. And so, you know, what does it that Combs says when all the obvious things are eliminated, you begin to think about the uh, impossible. So we thought that it might be something related to the way the neurons interact with each other. Now, if you, are you familiar with the, the effect of the synchronizing fireflies? No. Okay. Well, this is an interesting phenomenon. Okay. Well, if you're in the right place at the right time, at dusk, fireflies will start, you know, shooting off light and will be totally unsynchronized. But if you are patient, you'll find out that within a short period of time, these totally asynchronous uh, uh, beams of light from each firefly suddenly become synchronous. So here you have this network of fireflies not really strongly connected to each other, going from being asynchronous and random to being synchronized. And this is a phenomenon which is actually quite common in the world um, at a completely different level. Um, it, it was reported that women in dormitories synchronize their cycles. And so this kind of synchronization happens when you have things that oscillate that are normally not, don't need to be connected to anything to oscillate, but when weakly connected to similar oscillators, begin to synchronize. And now we have evidence that uh, after each inspiration, the network be, returns to a low level of activity of uh, ag action potentials, these spikes occurring at a very low level somewhat randomly, but they're interconnected with each other. And because they're interconnected with each other, what happens is they gradually become more and more and more synchronous. And as they become more and more synchronous, the activity in the network grows just because of the virtue of the synchrony. And when they become synchronous enough, that triggers this burst of activity, which becomes your inspiration. And then we have evidence that what happens is because of all this activity, the network breaks down and desynchronizes and the whole process starts over again. Now you might say, gee, that's awful complicated. Couldn't you just have simple pacemakers? But this goes back to our discussion of the watch. There are so many things you need to do for breathing and breathing has to, one thing breathing has to be is very labile. The notion that you had to have this exercise hyperkia. And if you had a, something that was driven by pacemakers, um, they're very slow to change. If you look at your heartbeat, you know, if you go suddenly sprint, your heartbeat doesn't go from 60 per minute to 150 per minute in two beats. It takes a while for it, it to ramp up. Whereas your breathing can go from 12 per minute to 40 per minute virtually instantaneously. And we think that that's one of the properties that 
is endowed into the system by having this kind of network interaction that allows it to move that system quickly in one direction or the other and yet still be very stable. That's interesting. So like um, swarm intelligence. Um, in a way, yeah, yes. I guess it's the intelligent of the uh, crowd. Because um, I wonder, and, our breath it has to be intelligent. It keeps us alive, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it, you know, it's an evolutionary thing. You know, if our ancestors didn't have their breath to keep them alive, they would have died. It would have been very Darwinian. So we're the, uh, um, the current result of a long cycle of mutations where breathing became more and more reliable. And it's incredibly reliable. Yeah. And uh, there are notable failures. Um, obstructive sleep apnea is one uh, failure. But by and large, you don't see people walking down the street uh, collapsing because they stop breathing. It's amazingly robust. It's amazing. If you put on your physics hat, how do you think about in waves or particles the pre-buttons or pre -butts Inger complex. Sorry. Um, I should, you, you, you will already know this because you heard that lecture. Butzinger is a appellation of a wine in, from a particular region in Germany called Butzinger. And um, that's basically how the Butzinger complex got its name. And then we named the pre-Butzinger after that. And um, I won't repeat the story here, but it's on BBC. So if any of your listeners want to find it, you can just yes. look up Feldman oh. BBC size. And uh, there's a five minute discussion about how we named it. Great. I'll link uh, to that so they can watch that. And that's really cool that, I mean, you named, discovered and named the pre-Butzinger complex, this area in the brain for essentially the central pattern generator for breath, right? But you didn't yes. give it your own name, which is not common. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, perhaps I would rue that. You know, it's, uh, um, it's not that I'm without ego, but I just felt that uh, if there was, um, if I, I had hard enough convincing people that this thing was real, if I had uh, been bold enough to name it after myself, I probably even would have met with more resistance. And it turns out that, People thought that Butzinger was simply a very famous German or Austrian neuroanatomist. So they were very accepting of using that term. It was only later on that they realized it was a Appalachian wine. And I have to say, strategically, it wasn't necessarily a great one because it's not great wine. So occasionally when I go visit somewhere to give a seminar, they uh, proudly take out a bottle of Butzinger wine, which they track down. <laughs> and I don't have a good poker face, so I try to be gracious, but I'm not exactly enthusiastic about going ahead and opening it right away. What's um, the process to rename it? Oh, um, I'm, I'm happy with it as it is. <laughs> okay. um, you know, if I named it after myself and it was called the Feldman Complex, probably people would think it was a psychiatric disorder. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and, and, the, and the reason we named it complex was yeah. because at the time we, we uh, understood the, what the Butzinger was, we didn't have any idea what it was or how it worked. And so it was complicated. So rather than call it a nucleus, we called it complex. And that's stock. 
I mean, it, you know, it's just crazy. Um, Smart. So what, what we envision the, the pre-budgeting complex to be is a group of maybe a few thousand neurons on each side of our brain stems um, that uh, start um, working during the third trimester uh, in utero. Um, and that's when they begin to start having rhythmic activity. And so you have rhythmic activity. Humans have rhythmic activity during the third trimester. And this is a critical for getting the circuitry to work reliably when you're born. It's also critical for proper development of the lung and the diaphragm. So in utero, you have these uh, episodic contractions of the diaphragm which are driven by the pre-butzinger as the pre-butzinger is sort of getting there and figuring out how it's going to, uh, going to work. And, and in utero, the, sorry to interrupt, but in utero, the no. baby's in fluid, right? Correct. So yes. he's, he, she, the baby's not, is, uh, is he not taken in? No, fluid? there's no, there's no Mus- fluid. It would be as if you were to take a breath with your, hand over your nose and mouth, there's still pressure on your lungs and your diaphragm. Your diaphragm is being stressed. You know, you might think of it as like a your diaphragm, like an isometric exercise. And so that's important in getting the muscle strengthened and uh, working properly. And the mechanical forces on the lung are important to get the alveoli and the blood supply working properly. So it's getting ready to make the transition. It's we're already so smart. We know we're about to switch environments and preparing the body for that. Like, um, well, the body is smart. I don't know if we're smart. <laughs> the body, yeah. <laughs> the body is smart. Uh, and I mean, I, the reason I say that is that uh, I don't want your listeners to think that it's a sort of a volitional conscious kind of thing. I mean, um, you know, Humans are animals who are born without a cortex due to some mutation or developmental anomaly still can breathe quite well at birth. So it's, I mean, it's amazing that all these things work together at birth. I have to say, I, I have three sons and when each one was born, it was just an amazing thing to hold them. But I've now become a grandfather. And I have Congrats. to say that when I held my first grandson, it was just like a miracle. I mean, it just, you know, I'm, I'm a biologist. I understand these kinds of things. But, you know, here's this thing that started out as a sperm and an egg nine months earlier. And it went through this incredible process. And it was breathing. It had eyes. It had fingers. It was pink. It had a heart. I mean, uh, biology is amazing. And um, it, it's a real challenge to figure out how these things work. And um, for me, it's fun. I mean, I enjoy, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy making discoveries. And um, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. Some of the problems that are very important ones uh, may be a little too difficult for us to understand now. But I think breathing is a problem um, where we're making great progress because it can be simplified relative to a lot of the other things that are very interesting, like vision or hearing or memory or learning when the baby takes that first breath and enters the air how does that work i mean um, so they they want to take a big breath because the 
the business part of where oxygen goes into the bloodstream is in the part of the lung called the alveoli. So air comes in, in your mouth, goes down this single tube, which is a trachea, and that trachea branches numerous times. And it branches so many times that at the end, you have about 500 million branches, 500 million branches that end in tiny little spheres that are 0.2 millimeters in diameter, about the hundredth of an inch in diameter. Now, the thing about these spheres is that the bloodstream, the uh, capillaries in the, the lung pass right by. So the, the air in the alveolus can go into the bloodstream, so the oxygen can pass into the bloodstream, and the carbon dioxide, which is produced by the metabolism of the body and you want to get rid of, can go from the bloodstream into the alveolus to be exhaled. And um, so when you're born, you, need to, you want to take a deep breath because a lot of those alveoli are basically collapsed. And if you think of it, if you've ever, ever tried to inflate a wet balloon, a balloon that's wet on the inside, you realize it's very hard to do because the inside surfaces are wet and water, believe it or not, sticks to itself. It has what we call surface tension. So if you try to blow up a wet balloon, you wind up, you got to really blow hard and then all of a sudden it blows up because you have to overcome that surface tension. Well, that's exactly what happens with a, that deep breath. And uh, as, you, as you heard Andrew Dubman talk about it, um, this is also the role that size play in normal day-to-day -day life. So every five minutes or so, we're all taking a deep breath, and that's to help the lung reinflate those small number of alveoli, but remember there's 500 million of them, a small number that have collapsed, reinflate them so they can still participate in gas exchange. That is amazing to me, because you think of the lungs it's easy to just associate a lump you know, just this picture of this lumped lung, but you don't necessarily think about these individual alveoli, like these little baby, like little lungs, there's 500 million of them. And, and like you said at the beginning with, if I'm sitting here with 250 milliliters, like the size of my fist and I have a thousand four fists, uh, four minutes of air, but my body has the ability to expand that, right? I wonder if the alveoli with the surface tension of the fluid around, does it have a tendency to want to collapse or not? No, in fact, the fluid is helping maintain its stability. Okay. So it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a complex process. In fact, um, one of the limiting factors in when a, a infant is viable is when they start producing lung surfactant. Lung surfactant is this fluid that lines the alveoli. And until they have that, the lung will have a tremendous tendency to collapse. But because of the physics of the surfactant on the inside of these spheres, it helps maintain their patency. And um, so that's why. Uh, Surfactant appears, if I remember correctly, so the end of the second, early in the third trimester. And okay. infants who are born before then, they have uh, to do extraordinary measures to make sure that their lungs stay 
stay patent. Now, one thing that um, is important to remember is that even though each alveolus is small, the movement of oxygen and carbon dioxide is passive. There's nothing, you know, uh, grabbing it and moving it. It's passive, but it depends on the total surface area. And the total surface area is about the third of the size of a tennis court, about 70 square meters. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing that in your chest, you have a surface area the third the size of a tennis court. And that with each breath, you're expanding that membrane, that one third of a tennis court, enough to inflate your lungs. And this is why the diaphragm is such an amazing muscle, because only mammals can have such huge surface areas. If you're an amphibian, you don't have a diaphragm. And so the way you breathe is not by inspiring, Amphibians and reptiles primarily breathe by expiring and relaxing. They expire and relax. So they don't have 500 million alveoli. They have orders of magnitude less, and they have much less surface areas. And with much less surface area, it means they can, can exchange much less oxygen. So that's why they can't be warm-blooded. They're cold-blooded. And they can't support big brains. In an evolutionary sense, we would not have big brains until we had diaphragms because we, we had to become inspiratory breathers that can move enough oxygen constantly to support the brain, which takes up about 20% of our metabolism. So there's 250 milliliters a minute that we're using. 50 or more is just for our brains. Wow. Okay. With humans... So inspiration is active, then is exhalation passive normally? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the answer is at rest, your inspiration is active, your expiration is passive. It's like you pull on a spring for inspiration and then you let go and it relaxes back. So when you inspire, your, your lung expands, your lung is elastic, so it'll naturally contract, but your rib cage will expand and naturally contract. So, so the energetics are you use energy to expand and you recover some of that energy to uh, expire. And this is probably also uh, dictated by evolutionary pressures because you're breathing 24 seven the most efficient breathing pattern is the one that is going to have the highest likelihood of survival because then you don't need as much food or nutrients to, burn, that, to support your, your breathing mechanics. So there's a strong evolutionary tendency uh, in recognition of other boundary conditions for the most efficient breathers to survive. So if you look at human energetics for breathing at rest, it's right at the sweet spot of being most efficient. That is when you look at the frequency of breathing and the depth of breathing. So if you were to change your breathing pattern to breathe slower and deeper or faster and more shallow, but the same amount of air per minute going in and out of your lungs, it would be a lot more energy. So your brain seems to know right where that sweet spot is. Now, when you when your metabolism increases, like when you uh, exercise, 
The first thing that happens is that you begin to take deeper breaths. But very quickly, that is uh, the energetics is such that it's more efficient now to begin to actively expire air. So you begin to take deeper breaths, you expire air, you take deeper breaths, you expire, you actively expire. And so active expiration is, is uh, very important. And we discovered that there is a second oscillator driving active expiration that is normally quiet. And that's the reason we missed discovering it for about 20 years. It's an embarrassment that we didn't discover it. But once we realized that, that there was active expiration, we realized we had this second oscillator. And so we think what happened is that the second oscillator was the, is the one that drives breathing in amphibians and reptiles, and that the pre-butzinger pre complex, which drives inspiration, only came along later in the development of of active inspiratory movements and the development of the diaphragm. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. So evolutionary, it's a, just a development. Um, why is it advantageous? Well, you just explained it then, the, the whole ability to expand as mammals and with the diaphragm. There's no way if we didn't have a diaphragm, we could have a lung that had such a large surface area. And if the surface area was one-tenth, then the amount of oxygen we could bring in, instead of being 250 milliliters per minute, probably would be more like 25 milliliters per minute, which could not support a human body. I'm interested in the pressure regulation exchange throughout the body. And like you said, you know, the carbon dioxide, the blood passing, diffusing through where you breathe in the oxygen, it diffuses into the, the blood and the carbon dioxide gets back into the alveoli to breathe out. What about the fluid? I'm curious about how important is pressure change utilizing the diaphragms in the body, you know, like the respiratory, pelvic, uh, um, thoracic inlet, or even the tentorium in the cerebellum and the brain. How important is this regulation with the breath respiration to facilitate rhythmic movement of cerebral spinal fluid, of blood, of lymph? Seems really, really important to how information is and nutrients is, is uh, passed throughout the body to me. Um, it's, it's a great point. So if we just look at now the uh, thorax and the abdomen, clearly breathing movements are producing tremendous pressure changes. So if you look at the way the heart's going to fill, it's going to be different during inspiration and expiration, because during inspiration, you're expanding the chest wall. The aorta is going to have a little pressure, pressure to expand. There's going to be more blood re uh, returning to the heart. Um, during expiration, everything is squeezed down. So you're going to have this rhythmicity um, that's going on in all your visceral organs. Now, that's going to affect, affect your blood pressure. So your blood pressure is going to predominantly be due to the, the contraction and relaxation of your heart. But there's also an effect of the breathing cycle. And you'll see the slow oscillation running on top of that. Now, 
you, we do have outflows that are respiratory modulated. So there's an outflow going to the heart from a, ner a big nerve originating in the brainstem called the vagus nerve. And from uh, the way this manifests is you get what's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. That is during expiration, there's a significant input from the vagus nerve into the heart that slows it down. And so if you look at the heartbeat, the heartbeat is going to be a little bit slower during expiration than during inspiration. Um, and this fluctuation can be actually me uh, measured and can be a reflection of your state of stress, anxiety, sympathetic activity, and so on. And this is measured at, as um, uh, heart rate variability. Um, is one of the parameters that can be that are used by many researchers and physicians to estimate the uh, relative balance between sympathetic outflow, which is related to activity and, and stress, and parasympathetic outflow, which is tends to be related for maintaining stasis, relaxation, calmness, and whatnot. And it turns out that the higher your heart rate variability is, in general, the it's a better indicator of your overall uh, body state. As far as things like lymph, once again, these big movements of your chest wall are going to have profound effects on uh, pumping the lymph, not only in your thorax, but throughout your entire body. Um, as far as what's going on in the, in the brain, it's a, it's a little bit more complicated. And... Um, I'm happy to get into that. And that sort of gets into this issue about meditation and breathing, which is, I'm sure I know is quite a bit of interest to you. Yeah, I would love um, to, because I'm interested in that uh, when you go up to the brain, the cerebral spinal fluid movement, um, just how you're describing kind of the rhythm and movement of other things. Because uh, you also have, when you look at the anatomy, the fourth ventricle, right? between the cerebellum, the medulla, the pons, so these key areas Ooh. for breath, there's this space, you know, it seems like the space in between, there's, there's communication, right, happening. Uh, so how important well, is this fluid-filled space for... To, to be candid, I, I don't really have very much expertise on that with respect to breathing under sort of normal conditions. Clearly, when there is, there's brain injury and swelling and the cerebral spinal fluid pressure goes way up, you can get damage. Um, but uh, with respect to how it affects the um, regulation of, of breathing or other brain functions, it's really uh, above my pay grade. And so I rather not, um, uh, I don't feel comfortable expounding on that. But clearly, there's going to be an effect of changes in blood pressure and changes in breathing on the movement of this and circulation of the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, what is to me of intense interest now mm -hmm. is the realization over the past 10 to 15 years is that breathing rhythm is found throughout the entire brain. So we already mentioned your pupils oscillate with the respiratory cycle, your fear response oscillates with the respiratory cycle. If you record in various regions of the brain, in the cortex, in the hippocampus, in the amygdala, 
and you look at the electrical activity, you find that the electrical activity has a component that is oscillating, waxing and waning with the respiratory cycle. That's amazing. I mean, some of this is coming from... So we did an experiment with uh, some uh, tremendously talented colleagues from Stanford, uh, uh, led by Kevin Yackel, who is an MD-PhD student in Mark Krasnov's lab, um, where he found that there was a projection from the pre-Butzinger complex to the locus cerealis. Now, that was a bit surprising because the, we thought the pre-Butzinger complex was going to be driving the movements for inspiration. So its outflow, its outputs would only be the parts of the brain that would be relevant to ultimately driving muscles. So it would be to the motor neurons that go to the diaphragm and the rib cage, or to the neurons just before that, the premotor neurons. And we had established that. But he found neuron, a projection to locus cerealis. And then he did something that was pretty amazing. He, working with uh, Lee Chin Lu and Lindsay Schwartz at Stanford, they were specifically able to kill these neurons. That is, the neurons that projected to locus cerealis. Now, let me say a little bit about locus cerealis. Locus cerealis is a region of the brainstem that seems to project everywhere and is involved in modulating all sorts of behaviors. So it's one of those places that once you get into it, you can affect everything in the brain. And so the fact that he found this project into, into locus cerealis was very curious. But what he did next really was interesting. And that is that when he ablated these cells, he found that the mice, this was in mice, they continued to behave normally, except they appeared much calmer. So if you look at mice and you watch mice, they will often sit and groom, they'll walk around their cages and whatnot. And you can assign an index to the degree that they're calm, they're just sort of chilling. And he found out that when he he ablated these cells, the animals were much calmer. So this was the first indication there was a direct signal coming from the pre-Butzinger complex going to a region of the brain that can affect behavior. And so uh, this is only one example of how the signal related to breathing now gets into all these regions of the brain. Now, there are other places it could be coming in from. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that's coming in from the olfactory system. So your, your olfactory mucosa are activated every breath. Every, when you inhale, they get odorants. When you exhale, it gets expired air. And so you see this respiratory oscillation in the circuits related to olfaction, and they project into the brain. And when you eliminate them, you get changes in neuronal function and behavior in mice that seem to be related to the loss of this respiratory activity. Mm. So we're very interested in that because there's an enormous amount of data, uh, both sort of pre-scientific and now scientific, that changing your breathing pattern can have a a significant effect on your emotional and cognitive state. Um, you know, we all know we take a, if we're anxious, we can take a deep breath or a series of deep breaths and it can be very relaxing. 
Um, there's lots of good data on meditation uh, that just certain types of breathing movements are repeated over several minutes on a regular basis can have a, a calming effect. And the question we're trying to address is why? Why, why is that happening? And um, we don't know yet. Um, we actually have an, a, a, a series of experiments to try and teach mice to meditate. And cool. I know that's, that sounds crazy, but basically if we can teach mice to breathe slow on command, that is not stressful, just say, okay, breathe slow. We can see whether or not that affects their response to situations they might find stressful. And we think this would have two very important effects. One is we can then begin to study what the mechanisms are at a detailed neuronal level if we could actually do this in mice. But I think perhaps just as important, it might convince people who would benefit from the effects of slow breathing for dealing with stress, depression, anxiety, and whatnot, who think that a lot of these uh, efforts on breathing are a little bit too um, uh, woo-woo, you know, not really uh, based in science, that has a scientific basis that, you know, it's unlikely we get a placebo effect in mice. So if you do it in humans, humans might respond by a placebo effect. But if you do it in mice, there's unlikely to be a placebo effect. And so we think mm -hmm. that, that uh, if we can do this and demonstrate this in mice, and we have some preliminary data, which is very promising, but we're not ready to publish it yet, that we can do this, that it may convince people that to try this and to see that it's, it could be very beneficial for them. How do you do you monitor the the mice respiratory rate and then reward them when you see it's low to get to train them? Okay, uh, so um, there are several things we're trying. So other colleagues have tried this this thing when they breathe slow, they they give them some sort of reward, and that slows their breathing down a little bit. But we want something to be a little bit stronger. So we're trying to use. Um, What's uh, one of the things we're trying to use is what's called operant conditioning. That is, that there's a region in the, the brain of mice and in humans when it gets electrically stimulated, it, they find it extremely rewarding. And so, one of the protocols that we're using is every time the animal sighs, and a mouse sighs about every two minutes, we're going to stimulate this part of their brain and they're going to realize that, hey, I can get this reward if I sigh and you ring a bell. So whenever they hear that bell, they realize that if they sigh, they can um, get the reward. And so this is a standard way of getting mice to, uh, to engage in a behavior that uh, you would like them to engage in. So that's one of the things that we're, we're trying to do. We're also trying to directly manipulate their breathing by stimulating their pre-Butzinger complex in ways that uh, actually slows their breathing rhythm down. These are not easy experiments, but uh, we're having some modest success so far. I wonder in humans, when I work on people, if I work on the viscera, the stomach, the nervous system, really the heart rate, the, the breathing rate really slows down. I wonder if with the mice, if there's a way you could uh, stimulate the gut and from doing that, you will see a slower respiratory rate. 
Uh, I don't know. We, a... We've not, well, no, I look, you know, you, at, at this day, you know, there's a mantra in my lab. You, you can't do anything interesting if you're afraid of failing. So, uh, you know, we might do, we're like sort of venture capitalists. We might do 10 crazy things, but if one thing works, it's going to be fantastic. And so we're not afraid of doing things that may be a little bit crazy. What we won't do is do something that's crazy. It's going to take us several years to figure out. We do crazy things that we can figure out in a couple of weeks, whether it's going to work or not. So this would be something I'll discuss with the people in my lab and we'll, maybe we'll take a look at it and we'll keep in touch with you to let us know, to get your advice about what the proper manipulation is. What if you put a little, you know, there's those weighted blankets for calming the nervous yeah. system. What if you put a little weighted blanket on the mouse, some kind of. We, have, we <laughs> haven't tried that. I mean, we're, we're throwing lots of things up against the wall. We haven't tried that yet. But uh, certainly a mouse who is swaddled is much calmer. But we really want to slow the breathing, down, uh, breathing rhythm down, just not just a little bit, but considerably. Yeah. And the mice breathe fast, huh? I think. Uh, I'd heard you say three, up to 300 breaths per minute. Correct, yeah. That's fast. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about breathing um, when you look across species. So mice will breathe 300 per minute. A whale can breathe as slow as once every couple of minutes. So when we think about how the nervous system works between mice and humans, or mice and whales, we basically think that's operating on the same time scale. So we think about the mechanisms for learning and memory. There's a process called long-term potentiation, and it occurs on a particular time scale. And we don't think because a whale is orders of magnitude bigger than a mouse that the process is an order of magnitude slower. But the breathing is orders of magnitude slower. And so one of the conundrums we have is what is scale? In other words, how can a whale, does a, what mechanisms is a whale using that are both similar to what a mouse is using, yet operates at a time scale that's hundreds of times, a hundred times slower? Yeah. Um, and we haven't figured that out yet, but as somehow I think the person who figures that out is going to learn a great secret about breathing that may unlock all the basic processes of how breathing pattern is generated. Yeah, that's interesting. I was trying to think about that and thinking life expectancy like the mouse only lives a couple of years where i saw some whales live up to 200 years and i was wondering if there was a correlation there but i don't think that's it <laughs> well people have uh, speculated and i don't know how rigorous the analysis has been is that um the number of heartbeats or the number of breaths uh tends to scale so you, your heart breathes slower, you may live longer because you only have a certain number of heartbeats from the time you're born, or you may only have a certain number of breaths. I mean, the, the amazing thing about breathing is that the, you only have a few thousand neurons, and it seems to work pretty, pretty well if you lose up to about half of them. But if you lose a bit more than half, it starts to break down. And in humans, breathing is pretty normal in the population in terms of being able to generate the rhythm uh, until people reach their 60s and a little bit older. And then they begin to have some problems of breathing during sleep. But, and, and I'm not talking about obstructive sleep apnea. 
talking about what's called central sleep apnea. And so there's something that begins to happen in these individuals uh, as they get older. And as they continue to age, the breathing problems during sleep get worse and worse. And, and then more and more people in the population, as you look at the older age groups, have these problems of breathing during sleep. So I think the system is designed to be extremely robust. And this is another aspect of having this network that you can lose part of it uh, and it still works quite well. But up to a certain point, once you get past about half, um, but these neurons seem to be very long lived and you know it seems to be okay for a lifespan of you know, 80 to 100 years. And uh, when we start living longer, who knows if that's going to become a limiting factor. For the sleep apnea, do you have any advice for enhancing like the health of the breathing system and habits? I had a specific client. I I asked clients about questions for you. (laughs) As far as, you know, balanced diet, weight loss, less inflammatory foods, um, but this person is also taping their mouth at night um, and interested in the nasal cycle. And if there's any correlation between right versus left nostril for autonomic balance, um, what do you think about that? Uh, Okay. Well, let's talk about obstructive sleep apnea, which affects about 4% of the adult male population and for which women are relatively, um, uh, relatively infrequent sufferers of obstructive sleep apnea till after menopause. Then after menopause, their rate rises to be approximately that of, of uh, males. Um, an effective therapy is what's called CPAP, constant positive airway pressure. It's these uh, ventilators with mass, and they basically provide a little bit of pressure to keep the airways open. They seem to be very effective, but the compliance is low. A lot of people just don't like them. They never adjust to them. And um, there lots of people use them with great success. And if you have a client who has problems sleeping, they should get a sleep test, uh, which now could be uh, many insurance companies can pay for a sleep test to be done at home. So it's not very invasive. And if they get diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea, they should sleep to speak to a, a sleep specialist, and uh, they would should consider getting a, a CPAP machine. Uh, however, talking to colleagues who are physicians who treat patients who have obstructive sleep apnea, they're looking for other ways to treat this problem because um, of the difficulty a lot, a lot, a significant fraction of the population has using it. And uh, so people are looking for other ways of manipulating this. Um, there was a recent study, which was quite interesting, where it looks like at least in rodents, this peptide called leptin, which seems to be related to appetite, but leptin seems to reduce the incidence of obstructive apneas. So they're looking now to test this in humans. Um, These various other therapies, um, I've read and spoken to colleagues, there are mixed reports of the effectiveness. Um, The one thing that's effective is heroic surgery where they literally move the jaw forward 
to create more space in the airways. But doing something like uh, burning tissue out of the upper airways, which uh, is a routine surgical procedure, uh, the last data that I saw shows that it can be effective for a while, but then people become uh, have obstructive apneas again. So it's not a long-lasting solution. So I would say um, see if get tested, uh, try a CPAP machine. If you don't have a CPAP machine, there are also there's also a possibility that people become obstructive and don't wake up. They resolve it. Part of the problem with obstructive sleep apnea is people wake up. And when you wake up, you have a significant disruption of your sleep cycle, which in and of itself can be very dangerous and have long-term health benefits. And uh, colleagues are testing various drugs that seem to be able to allow people to recover without waking up. So they don't go through long periods in which they're not breathing. They start their breathing without waking up. So that's another possibility that's on the horizon. And this is also in clinical tests. Um, but right now, as far as I know, the only routine working therapy is uh, CPAP. When you wake up multiple times throughout the night, why is that so negative to the body? Okay, uh, good question. Um, so when you sleep, we don't really know why we sleep, <laughs> except we know that if we don't sleep, it's very bad. Um, and there are all sorts of theories about uh, why we sleep, but we know if we don't get enough sleep, it's bad for our health. And so um, it's very important to get as much sleep as, as you can. And during sleep, you have multiple stages. You have what's called non-REM sleep, and which is or slow wave sleep and REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And you basically need both stages throughout the night in order that you wake up in the morning with your brain in an optimal state. If you have too little sleep, then your brain starts to fall behind. Uh, and there's lots of data of individuals who have uh, poor sleep whose health um, deteriorates. I mean, there's just no way around it. And uh, here again, uh, there are a lot, I know there are lots of um, things online, there are lots of books being written, but for individuals who have access to a physician who's knowledgeable about sleep, it's worth talking to them. The other thing which I think we tend to frown upon, which I think is very helpful, is napping. Hmm. Um, we often have this midday um, period where we get a little bit sleepy. But if you look at some of the most productive people uh, that we know of, you'll find that secretly they're taking a nap for 30 minutes in the middle of the day. Uh, and then, you know, you say, how can they stay up so late? Well, they stay up late. They get their six hours, six hours five hours of sleep. But to get that half hour extremely restorative nap in the middle of the day. I know that's hard for a lot of us to do. Um, what I often do is I will, not, I will not necessarily take a nap, but I will close my door 
and I will meditate for 15 or 30 minutes. And I try and get into a deep enough state of meditation that you probably can't distinguish it much from sleep. And it's extremely restorative. Uh, I even do this now if I'm driving alone long distance. Well, no one drives alone long distance anymore, uh, nowadays, but back in the days where I used to drive up to see uh, people in San Francisco, if I get tired, I now, I would pull over and I would meditate for 10 or 15 minutes and it'd be completely restorative. I would be fully awake. So I, I think people need to be willing to consider that and not say, think it's shameful that, gee, you can't make it through the whole day. You got to take a midday nap. You know, you're like some old guy. Um, it can be extremely restorative. And if you can fit into your schedule and it works for you, and that's the way your body works, it would be great. And, it, and it's a major contribution to the restorative effects of sleep. Okay, that's very helpful. With your meditation, how do you do you focus on breath or are you willing to share you, how you do that? Um, you know, I, I look at breath probably the way uh, I look at exercise when people ask me about exercise. Um, um, what I say is that if you're not exercising, anything works. And so if you're not doing any breath practice, I will not say any one is better than any other. I think slow breathing is the way I would try it. But whether you use sort of box breathing or pranayama kind of breathing pattern, um, I'd like to, to focus on my breath. But I learned to, med I learned to meditate in a, a, a crazy way is I knew nothing about meditation. And um, I became curious about breathing and the effect on emotion, but really wasn't ready to do any experiments on it. And mm -hmm. uh, there was an article in the New York Times about mindfulness. And Rory, believe it or not, I lived in Los Angeles for 15 years, and I never heard of mindfulness. So <laughs> it shows you how much of a silo I was in. Uh, and I Googled it, and it turned out UCLA. I had a mindfulness institute. So I decided, One of the best anywhere too, right? Uh, I, I, so they say, and they're very good. They're very good. And so they had classes and I figured, okay, I could uh, go to take classes. And I was interested really in two things. Um, one is how important is the breath to the effects of the practice? In other words, Maybe I could just wiggle my finger and that would be enough to concentrate on. And the other is having grown up uh, watching all these movies involving uh, Shaolin monks and whatnot, I wanted to see if I could levitate. Um, and I'm still working on the levitation part. <laughs> <laughs> I, ha I haven't given up yet. Uh, but I became convinced early on in the mindfulness practice that there was something special about this breathing, that it wasn't just a distraction or a focus, that there was something really meaningful about breathing. And that's what got me on this whole thing about looking at all these breathing rhythms. And uh, fortunately, I looked into these experiments that, that they, these guys at Stanford were doing, and that really got me hooked. And then the thing over the past several years, it's, it's funny how things work. When we published this paper, uh, on uh, the effects on the locus aurelius. It was published in a major journal. And um, I got a phone, but it went viral. And uh, 
lots of news media picked up on it, including the New York Times. So after the New York Times published this article, Mike, I got a phone call from a colleague literally across the way from me, about 100 yards from my office, who was, uh, she was a psychiatrist who used a breathing practice to help pe treat people who have anxiety and depression. And she was trying to get funded for a center on breathing and emotion and needed to have some basic science research. And she read this article in the New York Times. Now, I'm used to having colleagues read my articles in scientific journals, but having it being read in, in news media was to me a very strange thing. But we started working together and we're putting, we, we put together a proposal for a center on uh, breathing and emotion, which involves our studies on rodents. And I've engaged uh, one of the world's leading psychologists of fear, Michael Fanzalo, and the world leading neuroanatomist, uh, Hangwei Dong. And so we have this super team to do the basic science. And awesome. my colleague, Helen Levretsky, uh, is, uh, has a team now to look at breathing practice and how it affects uh, activity in the brain. So they're going to do uh, brain imaging, fMRI, in individuals who either either normal or are anxious, and then putting through these uh, very regimented breathing protocols and see whether or not, one, it affects their behavior in any way, and two, whether it affects the activity in any particular regions of the brain. And if we can discover that, we can then begin to provide a more rational way to develop better ways to treat uh, these um, anxiety and stress disorders, and preferably without having to use pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. Which would be amazing, right? Yeah, drug companies don't like it, but uh, you know, I think that would be great. Has Helen come up with uh, breath protocols you've mentioned just the slow breathing many times. Uh, so have you found that to be, you know, more important than a particular tempo, whether it's inhale, hold, exhale, hold, whatever the tempo of the breath is, the fact that um, uh, you emphasize the exhale? I'm very, I'm very ecumenical about this. And part of it has to do with my, my theory about why slow breathing works. Mm -hmm. And um, I've explained this in my Andrew's podcast, but uh, maybe I should repeat it here. Um, let's take something like depression. So mm -hmm. depression, you can envision as activity going around a circuit of neurons, tens or hundreds of neurons connected in a loop. And in the nervous system, when activity continually repeats itself, there's a tendency for those connections to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's a little bit like you are walking around on a dirt path in a circle. If you keep walking, you begin to make a rut. And you keep walking, the rut gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And so if you're, the, these neurons get connected more and more strongly, just like being in a deep rut, you can't break out of it. These neurons are so tightly connected, you can't break out of it. And so someone who is seriously depressed, it's not easy for them to break out of it. Now, one of the things that works in people who are seriously depressed is electroconvulsive shock. 
And this is a fairly heroic intervention where they put uh, special electrodes across the head, over the ear, basically over the ears, and they put a electric shock, and that basically shocks the whole brain. Now, what does that do? Basically, it disrupts that circuit. And in disrupting that circuit, it begins to break down the connections, much like I would take a little bit of dirt and fill in this rut that I've been uh, uh, generating by walking this loop. And electroconvulsive shock provides relief for a period of time, and then you have to repeat it, and get, you get relief, and you repeat it, but it's very heroic. Now, you, you can do it in a somewhat less invasive way, invasive way, but it's still pretty invasive with either what's called transcranial magnetic stimulation or deep brain stimulation where you put wires into a particular part of the brain and you shock that part of the brain. And here again, you're disrupting those circuits. And in disrupting those circuits, you begin to break them down and those circuits are responsible for stress or depression. They can begin to be lifted. Now, one of the things that's very important about the way neurons communicate across the brain are oscillations. So you have information coming into your brain from many different sources. You have vision, you have hearing, you have touch, you have your body interoception, and yet you perceive it all as one. But the parts of the brain are very far from each other that are getting the information. The visual information is coming into the back of your brain. The auditory information is coming in more towards the sides. And yet, how do these things remain coordinated? And remember, the brain requires signals to be timed within a millisecond to be accurate. So one of the ways that appear, or an important way the brain appears to do this is that it's generating oscillations. And these oscillations allow each part of the brain to say, okay, I'm at this point in the oscillation, let's say the peak, I'm going to send a signal. So when it goes to this part of the brain, it knows that it started at the peak of the signal. So it knows exactly when it came. It's not in a mishmash. And so there are oscillations in the brain that go from up to maybe 100 times per second to a few times per second that are just being generated in the brain. But now that we know that there are breathing oscillations, those are even slower. In humans, it's every couple of seconds. Now, the one difference about the, and, and so I, I think those breathing oscillations are playing an important role in this way that the signals get, get bound, binding. It's called the binding problem. They mm -hmm. bind together, and the breathing signal is playing a role, role in doing that. Now, normally you're at rest. It's your normal breathing signal. So it, it's using that. But if you of all these rhythms going on in your brain, the only one that you can control is your breathing rhythm. You can slow it down. You can't slow down your alpha rhythm or your gamma rhythm or your delta rhythm. You can't slow down volition. And so... What I think is happening when you suddenly go from this breathing, which is every five seconds to every 10 or longer, or maybe you change the ratio of inspiration, expiration, or you increase the size of the inspiration, you disrupt that signal processing. And so if you have this activity going around in this loop that represents stress, you're now disrupting it. And in the process of disrupting it, it's now getting weaker and as get weaker 
and you do it every day or a couple of times a day over a period of time, you can weaken it enough that it just can ultimately dissipate. So I think that that's where the breathing rhythm comes in. And at this, at this point, I think any significant change in that breathing pattern, significant change, particularly towards slower, but it could be deeper. You know, you could have sort of a side type of breath. Mm -hmm. Anything potentially could work. And I think that there's enough variance uh, uh, amongst individuals as to what they feel comfortable doing that rather than say prescribe four, four, two, two, one, or, or, you know, give them some formula or, or box breath or whatnot, say, look, here's a palette of things, try it, do it for 10 minutes, see if you feel anything. Is it hard for you to do? It's easy for you to do. And if it was not hard and you feel good afterwards, repeat it. So, um, you know, I, I realize there are lots of individuals who, um, uh, I don't know if that's used the right term, but proselytize that one method is superior to another. And it certainly could be superior for them. And in the end, there may be one method that is optimal. But I think there's also, in addition to what individual wants, it depends what your goals are. And uh, there again, the breathing pattern might change. Now, people ask me about left nostril, right nostril. Mm -hmm. It's not... Uh, it's not without a potential basis in fact because the brain is lateralized, but I have not seen enough data to persuade me. But if some people, you know, if a person thinks left versus right is working, I would not discourage them, you know, uh, not to be a cynic, but the placebo effect can be very powerful. So even if you just think something that works and it works for you, then, you know, bless you, go ahead and do it. Yeah. I want to, I want to find, I, I want to find mechanisms. I want to understand how it's happening. And so um, I want to be able to distinguish it from what you might call placebo effect. Yeah, I like that you're doing that. <laughs> so we can all benefit from the work you're doing. And everything you just said, I think that's huge because the oscillations of the breath and the connection to emotion and how you get this neural emotional loop, how you described it with those ruts, to get out of that, I think it makes, a, makes more sense to me than following a specific breath protocol of more just connect to your breath, be aware of your inhale, exhale, and make it do something different, whether it's faster, slower, but do something a little different, or not, not even a little, but maybe gradually a lot different, because you, the point is to break the, the ruts, right? Which you need yeah, that variance. And, and experiment. I mean, you know, yeah. this, this is a, you know, I'm not a physician, so I'm, you know, I, I'm not prescribing anything. But of all the things that you could do, if you're otherwise healthy, this is pretty benign. Yeah, it this makes me think of benign. It was making me think of the HRV with the heart rate variance being, you know, a high score being more varied, not just 60, 60, 60, 59, where it's, you know, 110, 60, 40, that was thinking the respiratory rate maybe 
maybe we need variants to be healthy as well, right? Like just well, your respiratory your respiratory rate is variable, and one of the ideas of that of that that's a reflection of the thing I talked about way back when about this network coming together. That that's one of the signatures of these types of networks. That if particularly if they're chaotic. Um, that's a very that's that's a common term, but it's also a mathematical term for the way things can interact. And there is a built-in irregularity to that to that that is inextricable to the way it behaves. So I think it's just a reflection. If you're too regular, um, it's probably not an indication that you're very healthy. Yeah, which that's not uh, obvious to everyone, you know. <laughs> uh, it's fact. It's almost counterintuitive. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. But uh, I would not use the variance that you go from 40 to 110. I would say the variability is you go from 60 to 61 to 63 to 58, that there's a narrow window when you're resting where your heart rate is moving up and down and your breathing's moving up and down. The bigger swings are driven by other things, but sort of the at-rest normal behavior that's when you want to see the fluctuations. That's sort of the best exa- best indicator that things are probably working properly, okay. which is counterintuitive. Yeah, it is. It took, yeah, I'm starting to understand it now. But a couple more things. With cellular respiration, you think of breathing just in the lungs, but we have trillions of cells. Is, is every cell in our body breathing, essentially? Well, every cell in our body uses oxygen. And uh, it needs enough oxygen to work. And there is fluctuation with the breath and the, bl- uh, and the amount of oxygen in the blood. So the cells are seeing that fluctuation. But there's, there's an issue about oxygen that, that I wanted to mention to you. But this has a little bit to do with exercise and the way cells respond to oxygen. So you know about high-intensity interval training. Mm-hmm. And... that the data is that that can give you benefits that are different than you would get if you just did a steady sort of cardiovascular exercise. You do a a Tabata for four minutes, you can get benefits that 45 minutes of being on a treadmill don't give you. And so I've wondered about this. And uh, two years ago, they gave the Nobel Prize to three scientists who studied the role that oxygen played in cellular metabolism. And one of their important discoveries is they found that when oxygen levels got low, it initiated a cycle that caused the expression of a gene called HIF, H-I-F, hypoxic-induced factor. Now, hypoxia-induced factor is something where where if the tissue has not getting enough oxygen, it produces lots of HIF, HIF. And this can be bad because at least inflammation. You find this, for example, at the center of big tumors. Um, And so HIF, when it's turned on by chronic hypoxia, can be bad. But if you turn it on episodically, it's probably good. So when you do high intensity interval training, so when you, when you do steady state, you're doing steady state cardiovascular for 45 minutes, your blood oxygen levels are pretty normal. So they're not turning on this gene. But when you do high intensity intervals, 
you're becoming transiently hypoxic. And what I think is happening is that this transient hypoxia is turning on this HIF gene. But you're not turning it on for hours or days at a time. You're turning it on transiently. Now, why would you have such a gene for turning it on transiently? And my guess, and you know, it's always a, a guess with things that have an evolutionary origin, is that it's there to say to the cell, hey, we just went through an episode of hypoxia. What can we do to make the cell behave better? And so that the HIF gene is probably going to be acting on the cellular metabolic mechanisms to make the use of oxygen more efficient. It probably affects the part of the cell called the mitochondria. And one thing that's been shown about the HIT is that it can improve mitochondrial function. So I think that, that here, oxygen, it's not so much tied to the breath. Well, it is tied to the breath, but it's tied to the fact that your breath can keep up with your your cell, cellular metabolism, and you're using more oxygen than you're able to bring in, so your oxygen levels drop, and that causes these genes to get turned on in your cells. Now, there's another thing about uh, hypoxia that is not quite related to HIT, but it's called episodic hypoxia. So, have you heard about experiments using episodic hypoxia? Mm -mm. Okay, so let me let me tell you. If I were to give you an air mixture that had low oxygen in it, let's say oxygen is normally 21%, it was 10%, your breathing would go up and it would stay up for a while. And then if I gave you room air back again, your breathing would come down. So it would go up, let's say I gave it to you for 15 minutes. It would go up for 15 minutes and then it would come down rather quickly. Instead, if I gave this to you for two minutes, I took it away for five minutes, gave it to you for two minutes, took it away for five minutes, repeated this several times, what would happen is your breathing would go up, down, up, down, up, down. And then after the last episode, it would go up and stay elevated for hours. Mm. But only if I did it episodically, not if I did it chronically. Am I, making, am I making sense, Rory? Yeah, because the brain thinks it's got to go up again, so it's trying to get back up there before. It's not. It's not. Well, I mean, you you might say it's the brain thinking it has to, but but it responds for hours. Right. But it doesn't respond. You know, you might say if it's the brain thinking about it, then why don't you get the same response when you see a tonic level of hypoxia? So I was I just thinking the prediction minutes. of the uh, of the interval. So if it keeps going, if the brain knows it's or expecting to do another interval of low oxygen, then maybe the body brain is just preparing itself ahead of time to get to respond. Uh, uh, that's what uh, I was thinking. Uh, Great idea. Great idea. You know, once we can get together, we should have a few beers and I'm going to pick your brain and let you wander everywhere because you have all these. See, you know, we, we spend so much time living in our silos that we, we don't really allow ourselves to think freely. And I appreciate the fact that you're not bound by all the prejudices that uh, I unconsciously have about what I'm doing. But Thanks. episodic hypoxia has now been shown to improve physical performance. So if you do episodic hypoxia before you lift weights, you'll be able to lift greater weights. 
Hmm. Um, it's been shown to improve cognitive function. So if you have episodic hypoxia and I give you a, uh, a test, you'll do better on the test. They're using it now, they're testing it now for spinal rehabilitation. Um, so there was an experiment done several years ago at uh, Northwestern University where they took an individual who had uh, a spinal cord injury and they had difficulty extending their ankle. Their ankle extension was weak. So they put them on a machine where they told them to extend their ankle and they can measure the strength of the ankle extension. If they gave them a period of hypoxia, then let them come back down and ask them to make the same extension, it was the same. But if they gave them episodic hypoxia, their strength greatly increased. Mm. And this was very long lasting. And so uh, this is work done by Gordon Mitchell and his colleagues at the University of Florida. They're doing this incredible work looking at episodic hypoxia. And it seems that almost across the board, all these functions seem to benefit from being exposed to episodic hypoxia. Um, we even have a, a plan to do an experiment on golfers. Yeah. So we're gonna take golfers and on the first tee, we're gonna expose them to episodic hypoxia. Is that a, ma a gas, like just a mask that you're Yeah, breathing? you just put a mask on. So, so okay. we, we either expose them to episodic hypoxia or room air, they don't know the difference. Gotcha. Okay, so we have a control group, and then we go measure all their parameters of their golf game. And I'm willing to bet that the golfers who went through, a, you know, 15 minutes of episodic hypoxia will hit the ball further and score better than those who had room air. Do we know if the endurance or the the efficiency of the the lungs is like for basketball or football, just as far as their breath and energy? Do we know if that improves from this? I, uh, from episodic hypoxia, I, uh, to be candid, I don't know. I know about muscle strength. I know about cognition, but I don't know if anyone has really looked at lung function. What would you think, being the lung master? Well, the breathing master. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't think so. I don't. I don't. Um, but. I, hypoxia, short periods of hypoxia seem to be magical because your body realizes that that's not optimal. And yeah. if it's only for a short period of time, it has the mechanisms to respond to it in ways that actually improves your body function under normal conditions. It's really interesting. And this is sort of... Sorry, I was just going to say it's really interesting that it lasts for two hours because you think about, you know, an NBA team might be doing this with their guys before the game if it does impact their – what if it impacts their vertical or all kinds of stuff? Um, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, these, I mean, you know, people have been exposing themselves to hypoxic environments for long term. These people who sleep in hypoxic tents or in um, go to altitude mm – -hmm. But there, the, the reason is quite, a, is quite a bit different. The reason there is that your body responds by producing more red blood cells. Mm -hmm. And when you have more red blood cells, instead of having 1,000 milliliters of oxygen, you suddenly have more oxygen in your blood because you have more uh, hemoglobin. So the mechanism there is quite a bit different than what I'm talking about for episodic hypoxia. Well, yeah, and you're also saying more, almost more like the high-intensity 
interval training versus the steady yeah. state. Correct. Can you do that by just breath holds or chain doing like, um, yeah, either breath hold or doing some kind of like hyper ventilatory breath pattern and then doing a series of holds to get the, to become hypoxics, to get the, the oxygen set to drop and then repeat that just with just a breathing protocol. Cause if you wore like an SPO2 or a pulse ox, if you did see, I wonder how long the change in the oxygen would have to happen or how many intervals to get that long lasting benefit, you know? It, it's so much fun to talk to you, Rory. It's a great idea, but when you're exposed to episodic hypoxia, you hyperventilate, okay? And when you hyperventilate, your CO2 levels drop. Now, we don't know the degree to which that hypocapnia, the low CO2, is playing a role in this. Gotcha. Okay, now, so when you talk about uh, holding your breath, when you hold your breath, you may get your oxygen levels to drop a bit, but your CO2 levels are going to rise. They're not going to drop. So uh, the, the blood gases you have are going to be different than you see during these episodic hypoxia episodes where your oxygen levels are going to drop. You have to forgive the noise. The guy out, out across the way is okay. using, you know, is blowing his lawn. Um, okay. Your oxygen levels are dropped but your CO2 levels are also dropping. We don't know the degree to which the CO2 levels are acting in a synergistic way. Oh, yeah. The best way that, to do it... Uh, go ahead, Corey. No, go ahead. Sorry. I, I mean, the, the best way to do it is get a, a tank with 10% oxygen and 90% nitrogen and just, you know, do it. Once again, I'm not a physician. I'm not prescribing it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I have to be very careful about saying it, but... Uh, it's, Don't do uh, this, but this is just a theory. <laughs> just talking that's right. it's just, at the moment. Yeah, just exactly. So. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah, I feel like I could talk to you for days, but <laughs> I think I need to, <laughs> need to, maybe we can do a part two at some point. Um, well, I mean, first amazing. of all, I'm happy to talk to you off the podcast. Um, Great. So, you know, don't be... Um, shy about that and if you feel your audience would like to pursue this further because there's probably a lot more to talk about um, um, I'm happy happy to do this I mean for me this is great because I spent my entire academic career in this silo and it's nice to talk to intelligent people who are not restricted by the same invisible barriers that I'm restricted by so it's it's, it's delightful Oh, well, thank you so much, because we really appreciate you hunkering down in the silo and working and producing, but it's really fun just to have this opportunity to talk and, and access your brilliant mind. It's so fun to just have ideas come around, throw them around, right? And oh, learn. absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you want to take a walk along Venice Beach or you want to go for a beer when we're allowed to go for beers, uh, we should definitely do that. I love it. Okay, Jack, thank you. Thank you so much. Ciao. You take care. It's Ciao. great speaking to Ciao. you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five-star review. Every listener matters to us, so please leave your comments along the way. 
to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, wishing you all the wealth, health, and happiness in the world.